Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit Fort Christmas Historic Park in East Orange County. So the war started in 1835. It lasted for seven years. It ended in 1842. And Fort Christmas, of course, was built in 1837. We'll bid a fond farewell to Florida Frontiers contributor Ben DiBiase. This has been just a dream job, and thank you all out there for listening, too, and and hope you've enjoyed it. And looking ahead to 2021, we'll begin a year-long series of monthly reports on the most endangered historic sites as identified by the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Thousands of people from throughout Central Florida converge on the small town of Christmas every year to have the town's postmark appear on their Christmas cards. Although East Orlando keeps moving closer and closer, Christmas is still a rural community located in East Orange County, about halfway between Orlando and Titusville. Fort Christmas Historic Park features a collection of historic cracker houses from the late 1800s and early 1900s, cow camps, and a schoolhouse, but at the heart of the park is a replica of Fort Christmas, which was originally built during the Second Seminole Indian War. Vicki Pruitt is a recreation specialist at Fort Christmas Historic Park. The war was mainly being fought because um, of people moving into the state and settling, and they were uh, encroaching upon the land that Seminoles were using, so there would be skirmishes. There was also the slavery issue because the slaves would leave Georgia and hide out among the Seminole Indians, and so they were always having um, troops coming down or people coming down trying to recapture slaves. And so it was basically a slave issue, a land issue. Um, Of course, they couldn't agree on, on how to use the land. So the war started in 1835. It lasted for seven years. It ended in 1842. And Fort Christmas, of course, was built in 1837. Many Florida towns grew up around forts that were constructed during the Second Seminole Indian War. For example, Orlando grew up around Fort Gatlin, Sanford around Fort Mellon, and Fort Pierce is still called that from the Seminole War Fort named after Lieutenant Colonel Kendrick Pierce. The idea was to build the forts about a day's walk apart so the soldiers could walk from one fort to another during the day and have protection at night. Fort Christmas was constructed in what is now East Orange County. Vicki Pruitt. They were in a winter campaign in December of 1837. They left uh, Fort Mellon, which is over on Lake, what we call Lake Monroe now, and they were trying to establish a chain of supply forts to keep the army that was fighting the Indians supplied with the materials they need. So they were following the St. John's as close as they could without being up to their waist in water. 
and uh, establishing the forts, they arrived at a place about a mile north of here on December 25th and started building their fort. So they named their fort Fort Christmas because they started it on Christmas Day. Fort Christmas was a typical Seminole Indian War fort made of tall pine pickets. The fort is 80 linear square feet with two blockhouses that are 20 square feet each with a storehouse and a powder magazine within the walls of the fort. Joseph Adams is a recreation specialist at Fort Christmas Historic Park and describes what's on display in the Fort Christmas replica. Blockhouse 1 has exhibits on the Second Seminole Indian War, the soldiers, and the Seminoles. Uh, Blockhouse 2 has uh, some of our more prized possessions from the Christmas community and exhibits uh, community life. And the storehouse has exhibits on some of the tools they would have used and then some of the tools the pioneers used. And we even have a model of one of the steamboats that went up and down the St. John's River. In addition to the replica of Fort Christmas, the historic park features two cow camps, the Union Christmas School, and a variety of historic cracker houses from different eras. As Vicki Pruitt explains, each house is staged with artifacts and exhibits. We tried to make the homes look like someone was living there and had just stepped out for the day. Each home usually has at least one bedroom, but instead of repeating bedrooms, we've put special exhibits to tell how the pioneers used to live. We've got a textile exhibit, we've got a post office exhibit, and a hunting, fishing, trapping exhibit. But each home that has a kitchen has the kitchen represented, the main living room represented, and uh, a bedroom. They were moved from their original location, most of them were donated, and then we upfitted them to represent different time periods. Uh, some of them we took back to the very beginning, Others of them we left at a later period, uh, but all of them had to have a certain amount of work done to them to get to the, the periods that we represent here. The cracker houses on display at Fort Christmas Historic Park feature familiar names from Florida's pioneer days, such as Simmons, Wheeler, Bass, and Yates. Most of the families that settled in the Fort Christmas area, they came in through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and into northern Florida and then on down into the central Florida and then they even proceeded on down south. So you see these names repeated in especially rural communities all throughout the state of Florida. Uh, the Yates family, I know they're widespread, the Simmons family. Um, we don't have houses for all of our pioneer families, of course, but the Tuckers are throughout the state. The Osteens are throughout the state. There's even a little community called Osteen, Florida, the Browns. So these pioneers, when they arrived here in the early times, in, when they arrived in Central Florida, like in about 1858, and then spread out from there, they were very large families. And so as these kids got a little older, then they continued to spread out throughout the different communities in the state and build land. Everybody wants land. That's the main issue. Finding a home. As Joseph Adams explains, two or three groups of students come to Fort Christmas Historic Park every week. Well, we have about eight different educational programs we can do with the students. Today's program is just going to be a general tour. They'll make and taste butter. Uh, we have a program, uh, which is my favorite, children's chores, where they make and taste butter, but they also wash clothes, snap beans, uh, feed the chickens, they pump water. And the students, you know, you know, a lot of students have chores, but the idea of the kind of chores and daily activities that the children had to do in the past is quite fascinating to them and very different. It's like you went back in time. Yeah. It's like we're in the back. Like the age of the porch. Okay. Okay, look, I'm getting on.
By the early 1860s, we had families arriving out here, th and throughout the 60s, by the end of the 60s, early 70s, we're talking 1800s, uh, we had probably 20 families living out here. And these are our uh, uh, families that are still in the area today. A lot of them, their descendants are here. They built farms, they had ranches, they lived off the land. When you came out here into the wilderness, you brought your wagon and your family, you brought your farm tools. Basically, though, you didn't work for anybody else. You worked for yourself. You had to raise your own garden. You had to have fields of corn. They had fields of sugar cane. Um, you had to go hunting for extra food. Of course, you had your livestock. And one thing they found when they got into this area is there were wild cows. There were cattle running all over the state. In addition to frequent tours for students, Fort Christmas Historic Park hosts a couple of major events during the year. Not surprisingly, one of them recognizes Christmas. Well, the first weekend, full weekend in December, is always Cracker Christmas for us. It essentially is our largest special event of the year. We have about 150 to 175 crafters, people who make handmade crafts to sell. Uh, then we have uh, demonstrations of, you know, pioneer skills. Uh, we, the syrup making, which is a big thing people come back for every year, uh, soap making, uh, wood carving, weaving, spinning, whip making this year, uh, just, you know, they're blacksmithing. about blacksmithing. It's about 100, yeah, we do about 50 to 60 different uh, demonstrations. Of course, we have a Confederate camp, and then uh, the Historic Society sells barbecue, which is always really good. And all of our community groups, our nonprofit local groups, the 4-H, the FFA, uh, they come and they earn money for their group by selling hot dogs or gator bites or um, beef on a stick, <laughs> that type of thing. We also have another larger event, uh, our Bluegrass Festival, which is normally the third weekend in March. Right. And we bring in about four local bluegrass groups, but they are really good groups. And again, we have some crafters, but it's not as big a, a craft show as, uh, say, Cracker Christmas. But it's two days under the oaks of, of pure bluegrass music. Visitors to Fort Christmas Historic Park enjoy the historic homes and the fort replica, but there's also a playground and picnic pavilions that attract many people. We get a lot of local people coming here to picnic. I mean, our park is maxed out as far as the pavilions go every weekend with picnickers but then we also get senior groups that come for parties and functions like during the week sometimes we have a lot of people dropping in who are from overseas you know they're they they see our sign on the road or they've googled central florida and something comes up and they they stop in here and some of them repeatedly yes. come back with whoever they bring on their next holiday to, to, to see us. Vicki Pruitt and Joseph Adams are recreation specialists at Fort Christmas Historic Park in East Orange County. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. The holiday break is a great time to binge watch the television series Florida Frontiers. Just go to our website at myfloridahistory.org to download archived episodes.
If you like this radio program, you'll love our TV series. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. And that's the last time I'll be making that particular introduction because after more than a decade with us, Ben has taken a new job out of state. First of all, congratulations, Ben. Well, thank you, Ben. I, uh, I really appreciate it. It's been, like you said, 10 years and really has been, I'd say, an adventure a learning experience, and really just one of the best best periods in my life. I've enjoyed working here for the Florida Historical Society, as you said, as archivist, but starting uh, way back 10 years ago as an undergraduate intern. I remember very clearly walking through the two double doors into the library, not really interested so much in history. I'd taken a few courses, studied humanities a little bit here and there, but I, once I sort of delved into the internship and learned about archival sciences and how the process worked and really how history worked and the complexity of understanding, analyzing, and interpreting history. I was just fascinated. And being a native Floridian myself, it was all the more, I think, interesting and gripping because I was pulled into these places and and names and people and figures that I had heard sort of in passing, but it was much more impactful to see the primary sources, to be working with that material. And then as I grew into the role, taking on kind of an educational role and, and teaching students who were in my shoes a few years earlier, that was a really rewarding experience, and it's been it's been great. And then working on the radio show, this has never... Something that I thought I'd be doing, but I've really, really enjoyed it. We've had an opportunity to meet some fascinating people, you know, leading figures in Florida history at annual meeting and symposium conferences over the years and, and here at the library. And, and just helping people facilitate their research, too, has been just a tremendous honor, and, and I've really enjoyed it. As you mentioned, you've been working with the Florida Historical Society for more than a decade. As you said, first, as an archival intern here at the Library of Florida History, Tell us about your first project in the archive. Yeah, sure. So that was back in the summer of 2009. And I remember walking through the doors and the archivist at the time had asked me, well, what are you interested in? I said, gosh, I don't know. You know, I've sort of been reading a little bit about the colonial period in Florida history, you know, 18th century, 17th and 18th century. And she said, well, come upstairs. We've got this collection called the Panton-Leslie Papers. And I said, Panton who? (laughs) Which is the reaction that I get all the time now from other people and I try and explain it. She said, well, there are about... 1,200 documents in two separate collections, and they all date from the 1780s up through the 1850s and some a little bit later into the 20th century. And it really chronicles the history of a fur trading company that operated in Florida from that same time period, from about the end of the Revolutionary War, so 1783 up to about the War of 1812 towards 1821 U.S. acquisition when the company kind of finally fizzled out, but then there was litigation that went on for several years. 
And it was really that collection, I think, that helped kind of propel me into this world because had I picked something else, it was maybe a little more dry or not as interesting. I don't know if I would have liked it as much, but it was great. Here I was, you know, handling a letter that was written by Andrew Jackson after the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. I mean, the actual letter written by him, you could see it, you know, signed his signature. It was just incredible. And then from the 1790s, these uh, promissory notes from Creek Indian chiefs to the company promising, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of deerskin pelts in exchange for your European goods. And that's essentially how that process worked. These Seminole Creek and Choctaw and Cherokee indigenous peoples would trade with this company called Pant Leslie and Company, which was owned by British citizens. And they were operating in Pensacola for most of the history of the company. And they just became one of the largest companies in the Southeast and really controlled the trade with the indigenous populations and really became kind of entangled in, in the politics of this borderlands empire between the United States, the British, the French, and the Spanish in Florida. So it was just this fascinating story. And here I was handling the original material. So that was the first collection. It took me all summer, spent about 160 hours, I think, during that semester. And I just, I had to have more. I didn't have enough. And I sort of, uh, I always tell people I stuck around until I got a job. (laughs) But after that, I worked as a docent for the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens for about two years. So I finished my undergraduate work, worked there for about two years, and then an opportunity opened up at the Library of Florida History for Educational Resources Coordinator in 2011 and applied for and, and started that job in February, I believe, of 2011. Back in 2014, you took some other documents unique to the Florida Historical Society archive and used them to create the book French Florida. That book was supposed to be published nearly a century ago, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. This was another one of those just kind of tangential avenues that this career has sort of taken me. In 2014, as you pointed out, I forgot why, but I was sort of going through the stacks and I just stumbled upon these boxes and they said French Florida. And I thought, French Florida, what is this about? You know, and I was familiar, of course, with the Huguenot colony, La Caroline or Fort Caroline that existed in the 1560s near present day Jacksonville. And I thought, well, it must tie in with that because there's no real distinctive French period other than that 16th century period. So we opened the box and here's this manuscript and it's yellowed paper, obviously written quite a while ago. I see the date. It's 1920s, 1928. And we have a, a version that's in French and then a version that's in English. And both copies are marked up with pencil marks and looks like a copy editor had gone through. And I thought, well, great, this must be a manuscript. It's not uncommon. We have a lot of manuscript copies of later published works. So I did a little searching and I couldn't find this particular book published anywhere. So I started thinking, gosh, we have the only we have the original manuscript. Maybe this was never published. And again, started digging a little bit more. This is just such a great part of this job because you go down these rabbit holes and you yourself will become the researcher. And it was just wonderful. And went through the Florida Historical Society correspondence records because I thought, well, gosh, why do we have this? Who donated this? The inventory records. And it turns out that the original manuscript was written by a French historian. His name was Charles de la Rancière, and he was the archivist for the National Archives in Paris. And he was fairly well known at that time and is still well known as, as a chronicler of the history of the French Navy. And he wrote this little short chapter on the French Huguenots who came to the New World during the the mid-16th century, during these religious wars period, and talks quite a bit about Florida. Now, he originally published these in French, in the French language, in the early 20th century, but he was approached by the Florida State Historical Society to translate the work and publish it under their auspices in the United States, and that process started in the 1920s. Unfortunately, by 1929-1930, with the Great Depression and this economic downturn, the Florida State Historical Society could no longer fund these publications. So they had gotten this book almost to the finish line, 
And then that was it. They could not afford to actually publish the work. It had been translated. It had these beautiful hand-colored Debray engravings that are one of a kind. And it would have been published in a two-volume set in English. But unfortunately, it was, it was never published. So it was given to the Florida Historical Society. And there it sat on the shelves for over 80 years until 2014, until we found it. And it just so happened that 2014 marked the anniversary of Fort Caroline. So we decided to publish the work. So I actually got the honor of editing and pulling together that manuscript. So we went through and made sure all the translations were correct. And we pulled out all of the copy editing lines, uh, formatted the book, and, and then inserted those hand-colored engravings. So it was really just a great experience. And I think the final product is, is pretty cool. And it's a great little piece of Florida history. I know this is a difficult question since the Library of Florida History collections are so diverse, but can you identify an item or two that you haven't mentioned yet that you consider to be among your favorites? Yeah, you're right, Ben. That is a tough question because there are so many. Uh, I would say in, in the rare book collection, there are some unique pieces, one of which is the oldest published book that we have in the collection, and it's a first edition of a book called La Florida del Inca. And it is a history of DeSoto's expedition. It was published in 1605. And this particular copy was owned by Henry Flagler, the railroad magnate who built the Florida East Coast Railroad line in the late 19th and early 20th century. His personal copy we have in the archive. Another great book is a, a signed copy of Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings' book, The Yearling, and it's inscribed to the Florida Historical Society. A lot of those early one-of-a-kind books that just don't exist anywhere else, I think, are, are so fascinating. I also like some of the letters. I'd mentioned a letter that was signed by Andrew Jackson, you know, some of those original pieces. Those are really, really cool. And, and students really get a kick out of those, too, when, when they can relate to or understand a name or a famous person. It just it kind of brings it home, you know, it brings that history home for them. So those are some of the collections. And, of course, I think the, the Pant Leslie papers, the first collection I ever worked on, will always kind of hold a special place in my uh, uh, Florida history heart because it was the first piece that, that really introduced me to the craft of writing and researching and understanding history and understanding primary sources. Well, it's been great having this conversation with you every week, Ben. Thanks as always. Thank you, Ben, so much. I can't thank you enough. I've always really appreciated your expertise. And likewise, I like sitting here and, and talking history. This has been just a dream job. And thank you all out there for listening, too, and, and hope you've enjoyed it. Ben DiBiase is now the former director of educational resources and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To find out more about what we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. As we look ahead to 2021, Holly Baker begins a year-long series of monthly reports on the most endangered historic sites as identified by the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation recently announced 2020's 11 to Save list of the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and the chair of the 11 to Save committee with the Florida Trust. He told me about the 11 to Save program. 
Each year, the Florida Trust Historic Preservation announces the Love and Save program as a part of its Florida Preservation Conference. Uh, the Love and Save program is designed to increase the public's awareness of the urgent need to save historic resources throughout the state and to empower local preservationists and uh, preservation groups in their efforts to preserve the state's rich history. So inclusion to the Love and Save program is really a starting point for advocacy and educational efforts, and it's intended to be a part of a collaborative effort in identifying uh, custom solutions to, to save uh, each of the properties. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation is dedicated to protecting Florida's rich heritage and history. Fish Island, a historic site south of St. Augustine, is a success story from the 2019 11 to Save list. One recent success story is uh, Fish Island in St. Augustine, Florida. Fish Island was, well, is approximately a 73-acre uh, cultural landscape. It's really undeveloped buffer that at one point uh, was Florida's first orange plantation established by Jesse Fish back in uh, 1736. In recent years, it was endangered of being developed into a mixed-use development, but through promotion through the Florida State, the Levin Save program, as well as local um, community organizers and activists interested in saving the land from development. The property was acquired by the state of Florida through the North Florida Land Trust last year, and it's gonna live on forever as a undeveloped open space, basically a public uh, nature preserve moving forward. Christine Dalton is a historic preservation and community planning consultant. She's also a member of the Florida Trust Board of Trustees. The Florida Trust was founded in 1978. And since that time, we have collaborated with partners to save irreplaceable Florida treasures. The mission of the Florida Trust is to promote the preservation and the inclusive sharing of the diverse architectural, historical, and archeological heritage of Florida. The 11 to Save program empowers preservationists and preservation groups and communities across Florida to protect historic resources. Christine Dalton. One of the things that I think is important to highlight too is that as Ennis was stating regarding Fish Island, the 11 to save list is not just historic buildings. Um, they could be historic communities and they could be historic sites. In the case of Fish Island, that was a, a historic site in Florida related to citrus, you know, as Anna stated, one of the uh, first citrus plantations, but it was undeveloped. And, you know, so we're not preserving something that's just a structure. We're interested in preservation of other sites, whether it's, you know, archaeological or even neighborhoods. And so I think that's important to note regarding the 11 to save. As Christine Dalton explains, it's the members of the public who nominate the historic properties and resources on the 11 to save list. One of the really great things about the 11 to save is that it's not the trustees of the Florida Trust going out and finding these properties. All of these properties are submitted to us from citizens in the different areas. So I guess what I would want to add is the Florida Trust 11 to Save wouldn't be successful without the people of Florida because they really alert us to, you know, the properties that are endangered in their communities and, and we need to continue that. So we're really grateful for anybody who participates in the program. Over the next 11 months, we will feature the Florida Trust's 11 to Save list from 2020, highlighting the most threatened historic properties and resources in Florida. 
To learn more about the Florida Trust and the 11 to Save program, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. From all of us here at the Florida Historical Society, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and best wishes for the new year. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.